0: Hi everyone, welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, digital managing editor of The Horse. Tonight we're talking about equine nutrition, but before we get started, we at The Horse have a special offer for Ask the Horse Live listeners. You can subscribe to our print magazine and get 75% off the cover price at thehorse.com slash askthehorseoffer. That's just $15 for a one year subscription. You'll get vetted and accurate horse health information each month throughout the year. So now let's go ahead and get back to nutrition. Uh, I start and end each of my days feeding my horses. Weighing feed, scooping supplements, and throwing hay are all part of of the natural rhythm of my daily routine. It's been that way for most of my life. But even after all these years, I can't help but wonder, am I feeding my horses right? If you've wondered the same thing, then you're at the right place. We're joined tonight by Dr. Claire Tunes of Summit Equine Nutrition, now based in Gilbert, Arizona. Welcome, Dr. Tunes. Hi, Michelle. It's great to be here this evening. Yeah, we're glad to have you. We have lots of of questions uh, to get to, but before we dive in, can you tell us a little bit about your experience and interest in equine nutrition?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I've uh, worked as an equine nutritionist now for... um, well over 10 years. It's something I decided to do when I was about 14, like you, grew up feeding horses. was always fascinated how I could change a horse's behavior or their body condition by what I fed. And, and sometimes not by what I fed, but how we managed them, feeding the same thing would have an effect. So that's, you know, the art and the science of feeding. So went off to college and studied nutrition and then uh, decided that I wanted to be Uh, a consultant and offer my services to horse owners and veterinarians as well as some select companies I do consulting for as well, Um, kind of helping people figure out, you know, what are the best ways to feed their horse, take the guesswork out of it, cut through all the sort of the claims and the myths and what have you to hopefully come up with solutions that are easy to implement and
0: um, so that people know they're spending their money wisely. Yeah, well, it used to be so easy. You, you fed your horses a scoop of cob and right. their hay. <laughs> so yep, I'll sell for, yep. for molasses, I'll sell for molasses. <laughs> yep, and then yep. Uh, now it is not like that all, at all, so no. um, yeah. So before we dive into the questions, I wanna give our listeners a review of the Ask the Horse Live format. Uh, we're gonna be starting with the questions that everyone submitted during registration, but if you're listening live, you can go ahead and send questions in to us. Um, if you'd like a clarification, if there's something specifically that you'd like to ask Dr. Tunese. um we're going to do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible. So let's go ahead and get started. Okay, Dr. Tunis, the first question is from Chris in Texas, and she wants to know how many calories should a performance horse have per day between their hay and their feed? So you know, the calories thing is so interesting because in human nutrition, it's so clear that like you look at what you're eating and there's a nutrition label and you see the calories and you have an idea of how many calories you need a day um, for a healthy diet. How how about our horses? <laughs> well, in
1: human nutrition, we're led to believe it's clear. But of course, the, a lot of the human nutrition research was done in uh, young men in the military. So for many of us, <laughs> it doesn't always apply there either. But um, <laughs> In horses, yeah. I mean, it's right Their Their nutrition requirements are based on uh, their body weight and then what they do for a living. Right. So it's hard to really say this is what a performance horse needs calorie wise, because it's going to depend on, you know, is your performance horse a 950 pound endurance Arabian doing, you know, a 50 mile endurance ride? Or is your performance horse a 1400 pound Dutch warm blood doing dressage? right, those are very different horses um, Mm -hmm. doing very different types of performance. Um, So it's very difficult to kind of come up with, you know, this is what a performance horse needs because there are so many variables in what a performance horse is, and they're all different. But just for example, let's say we take like 1250 pound horse, which is, you know, a good size thoroughbred or, you know, a smaller warm blood, and we say that that horse is in light work it needs, according to the National Research Council guidelines, 22.66 megacalories of energy per day. If that same horse is in moderate work, it needs 26.43 megacalories per day. And if it's in heavy work, it needs 30.31 megacalories per day. So you can see there's sort of a gradual increase from 22 to 26 to 30 megacalories per day. Um, So it's just sort of a gradual increase At the end of the day, you need to be feeding your horse to condition, right? Their body condition. Um, And some horses are gonna, you know, then you get the whole easy keeper, hard keeper thing. So um, you might get two horses that are the same size, doing the same work, um, and one needs more calories per day than the other because one's nervous and box walks all day long and is just burning calories all the time, where the other one's a chilled dude and just kind of hangs out at the back of his stall. So again, you have to have that variability. You have to, you know, you can't be And that's why I sort of said in my introduction, like the the interesting thing about like the art and the science of feeding horses, if you just sort of rigidly say, no, this horse needs 22 megacalories per day, um, you might end up with a horse that's overweight or you might end up with a horse that's underweight, even though they're both in light work and the same size. So you have to look at body condition. And then within that, you know, between the hay and maybe other feeds, you know, you want to be always remembering that a minimum of, you know, one, ideally one and a half percent of their body weight per day should be coming from forages. So that's going to account for, you know, a good chunk of your calories. And then, you know, you may decide to feed much more than that to get to their calorie requirement when they're performing, or you may choose to add a performance feed to make up that difference. And that's going to depend on, you know, the kind of discipline your horse is doing, um, you know, how well they do and some horses just won't eat enough hay to, to meet the requirement for heavy work and therefore they have to have higher
0: calorie feeds added in. I have one of those and it's very frustrating, but I keep hearing you say mega calorie. So can you explain to us how a mega calorie compares to the calorie that we see on the back of a Snickers bar? Right, so what you're saying on the back of a Snickers bar is um, like a
1: kilocalorie, right? So no. um, so that's that's much less than um, than a mega calorie, right? So there are a thousand kilocalories in uh, a kilocalorie.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you might you know see something as um, you know one thousand
0: four hundred kilocalories or K That would be one point four megacalories. Yeah, and that it can be kind of confusing because on our own food packages it says calories when really um it's a kilocalorie so um, right and there's the whole small c big c thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah yeah so so it is confusing okay so our next question is from Nilla in minnesota and she says she has sandy ground and would like to know which supplements are recommended and most effective to prevent sand colic Right. So, um, you know, there
1: are some out there. I think we all know of psyllium. Right, A lot of people feed psyllium and the general advice is, is that you feed it um, for a handful of days out of every month. Um, And you know, there is some research behind that, but it's mixed, right? So some of the research says it does nothing. Um, I was recently reading a research paper where they actually, um, I think they took like 24 horses and they actually took uh, x-rays of the abdomen to show that there was sand in the large colon. And then they fed them psyllium, you know, and, and also magnesium sulfate um, and, and then both of those things on their own, and then they re-X-rayed them to see what effect it had. And the combination of psyllium and magnesium sulfate um, had significantly reduced the sand. In fact, it almost completely removed the sand um, in the majority of the horses on that treatment. But they were feeding you know, one gram of psyllium per kilogram of body weight. I mean, that's over a pound you know, mm-hmm. for a 500 kilogram horse. That's over a pound. Mm-hmm. Of and the same amount of magnesium sulfate. That's a huge amount of magnesium sulfate. I would not advise any owner to do that. That was really done under, it was administered by a nasogastric tube and and done by a veterinarian. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, do the products we buy at the feed store that we're feeding, you know, a couple of ounces, do they have any effect? You know, I think the jury's kind of open. Some people swear by it. Some people, you know, say it doesn't do anything. I think if you have the budget to do it and it gives you peace of mind to do it, it's worth doing. But I would step back and you know, there's this temptation to always reach for supplements, right? Um, how could we not get there in the first place? Um, mm-hmm. I appreciate that the ground where she is is sandy, but let's say that horse is out on pasture. How are you managing your pasture? Are you grazing your pasture so short that that horse is actually consuming sand while it's eating the grass? Because if so, that's not really good pasture management because we would, we would like to take the horses in an ideal situation, off of any pasture whether you have sand or not sand that that those horses should be taken off that pasture when the grass is about four inches tall. Right, they should not be eating it down to sort of you know ground level, um, mm-hmm. because those plants need an opportunity to regenerate and grow. And if you keep eating your pasture grasses down to almost ground level, you ultimately kill them off because there is not enough leaf left for that plant to photosynthesize and replenish its its own nutrition, and so it starts pulling the stores out of its roots, and eventually you'll you'll kill it. Um, so, if you're on sandy sandy ground on pasture, you absolutely want to be managing your pasture in such a way that you take those horses off, um, not only for the good of the horses, but also to, you know, for the good of the, of the pasture. Um, If you're feeding hay, you know, how are you feeding your hay? Feed it in, you know, hay nets or large water troughs or rubber mats. You know, don't just be throwing your hay on the ground. And I see that uh, quite often, actually. I'm shocked (laughs) when I see that people. I mean, even just like dirt, not even necessarily sandy soil, but just dirt. That's all going to potentially accumulate in the gut. So think about how you're, you know, providing your food um, and try and make it so you don't have a problem that you have to buy a supplement for, if that makes sense.
0: We have a follow up question from Rhonda in the live audience, and she wants to know uh, about chia seeds. You mentioned psyllium. Chia seeds is another one. Uh Uh, And I would ask about flax as well. Yeah, I haven't really seen any.
1: um, I'm not aware of any sort of real studies looking at that and sand. I know people feel that they help. But but the thinking with the psyllium is, is that it helps remove sand because it's a novel fiber and you're only feeding it at most a week out of every month and you know the bigger benefit for feeding chia and flax is because of the omega-3s mm-hmm. um, and therefore you want to be feeding that daily and then the question becomes well it, does it lose then some of its efficacy as a sand clear product if if in fact it does that. Um, beet pulp is another one that people um, you know will feed beet pulp because they uh, believe it helps to clear sand and and I'm sure in some cases it may. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, but again, you know, it, it's, and, and they feel they're feeding beet pulp every day. They just see less sand,
0: um, sand in, in the gut. Yeah. Oh. So you mentioned not feeding on the ground. Have you come mm-hmm. across the perfect horse feeder yet? The perfect trough?
1: <laughs> well, you know, I, I
0: do see, um, yeah,
1: perfect trough. I mean, yeah. that's a, that's sort of a, there's so many different variables people want in troughs, but, um, you know, I do see interesting feeders out there. I mean, there's such a slew of different, you know, types of hay nets and hay bale feeders, um, you know, automatic pellet dispensers I love. And, you know, that's an, you know, those are always an interesting way to solve a number of problems. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, but the,
0: yeah I don't know if there's one ideal type of feed yeah. tub <laughs> yeah. you know, i I feed in the big uh water troughs, the rubber made ones yeah. um, mm-hmm. and it it all starts there, but it doesn't end up there. you know, they fling no. it everywhere I, mean, so.
1: I do the same, and you kind of hope that you think that mm-hmm. the thing's got you know almost like a two foot high side yeah. that, that most of it would stay in there you, you but the main where it would end up <laughs> yeah. yeah for sure but there are some interesting you know there's always those horses for the hay it's you know loose hay and one of those is tough but The grain containers, there are some interesting containers out there with kind of rolled lips because I know that frustrates a lot of people. You're spending money on this expensive grain and then your horse has got its head Mm -hmm. in the bucket. and It's just like sloshing grain out left and right. Um, And so they do have these ones with kind of like the rolled lips on the bucket. um, And that way they don't, um, you know, flip the feed out quite as much. I mean, another thing, like I mentioned about the uh like the automatic feeders they drop some of them drop so little at any given time there really isn't any food to to you know from a grain standpoint there's not enough grain there for the horse to knock it out of the feed tub because it's only getting a handful at a time so you get no wastage that with those Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a that's a different solution to the problem but um there used to be these cool feeders with they remind me of like poached egg containers if you ever saw those my grandmother used to have but they but they had like divots in the bottom and you put your grain mm-hmm. in, and then the horses couldn't, you know, they had to work really hard to get it out of these kind of impressions in the bottom of the bucket. Um, large, smooth river rocks help for grain
0: mm-hmm. sometimes,
1: you know, not, it's kind of going you know, to smack their nose on the rock if they try and, you know, knock it out of the bucket. But um, yeah, it's frustrating though. <laughs> Yeah, well, if anyone in sure. the live
0: audience has suggestions on the perfect uh, horse oh, yeah. trap, we'd love to hear them. So go ahead and, and enter those in your chat windows if, if you're there, um, if you're listening and, and have some suggestions. Our next question is from Julie in Wisconsin, and she said, if you're feeding two horses exactly the same, why would one look great and the other one not? Yeah, this is a great question, and I sort of touched a little bit
1: on it, you know, earlier when we were talking about the calories thing and how sort of the easy keeper, hard keeper, and you can have two horses fed the same thing and, you know, one's got enough weight and one hasn't. But, you know, I think here, you know, we can sort of think a little bit more about, well, why would that variability, you know, what makes the hard keeper a hard keeper or what makes the easy keeper an easy keeper, right? Right. the easy keeper you know we're really starting to learn about something called nutrigenomics and and how you know the genetics of the horse and how that plays into how they react to certain things they're fed is a very exciting field and I think it's you know an expanding field where our knowledge is really growing Um, and particularly of interest with horses that have um, equine metabolic syndrome and um, the risks associated there and can we can we figure out, you know, what the genetic triggers are there? Um, on the hard keeper side, you know, does the one that's not looking as good, you know, does it have ha- dental health good, right? Do we have um, some horses need their teeth looked at more frequently than others? Uh, you know, I had a friend that um, had a large horse that was struggling to keep weight on and she'd had the teeth done six months before, so she didn't really even think about The fact that, oh, it could be teeth, but after trying everything else, you you know, fine, we'll look at teeth again. And sure enough, it had quite a nasty hook. So I always think it's important to think about that. Um, Parasites, whether current parasites or, you know, previous damage. Um, You know, we don't always, you know, we haven't always owned our horses from birth um, we don't always know whether they've been you know well managed from the standpoint of internal parasitism and if you've had internal parasites damaging the intestinal lining and their scar tissue that intestinal lining isn't going to be as absorptive it's going to be hard for nutrients to get across that um, tissue as easily some horses just have different absorption capacities right some horses maybe make more of a certain type of enzyme than another. I mean, we just, we have no way to to really knowing that. Um, The age of the horse, right? Some, some horses as they age, just become a little less thrifty. Maybe they have, metabolic conditions as mentioned previously um so there can be so many factors and that's why it's really important to um you know I see all the time on online forums people sort of asking for nutrition advice you know and it always makes me cringe a little bit you know I just you know I have a 15 hand quarter horse and he's you know 10 and I want to know what to feed him and like 100 people weigh in with 100 different diets and I'm sitting there thinking you haven't asked, you know, what the horse does for a living. Where does he live? What kind of hay do you feed? I mean, there's like there's so many questions to ask. Um, and so when you have a horse that's not doing as well as perhaps your other horse, I think it's really important to kind of take a step back and, and you know, really look at everything. You know, is he being picked on? You know, is, is, if they live together, um, is the is the one that looks great the one that gets all the groceries?
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: because he pushes the other one off, you know. So it, it really... You kind of have to t- look at the whole big picture
0: yeah i kept one of my horses years ago at a halter barn and you know, it was all about blooming the coat you, mm. know, you wanted a horse really great bloom you know for the show season and it always seems like some horses just with certain coats like i know with mine my chestnuts always are kind of a little dull but then my bays are very shiny and glossy and like you guys are f- being fed the same quality of feed but it seems like just the the genetics of their coat color and the quality of their coat um, might affect that is that I I
1: don't know but I do think it's true I mean like it's it's just easier sometimes to see a shine and things on certain colors right I mean like it's um, uh, you know grays I always think of as being kind of hard to really get a good (laughs) good shine on a gray which when you see like a gray stallion who kind of has that stallion kind of chrome kind of look mm-hmm. I mean they just they're like it's sort of like whoa yeah. <laughs> you know that's that's that whole other the hormones I and mean, I think you see a you stand at you know chestnut stallion next they look like a copper penny I mean they just look amazing mm-hmm.
0: but that's again just because of you know it's their gender yeah <laughs> and all those I- hormones you know, our next question is from Barb and she's listening live and it's actually the next question in our script but she um she's there asking about it. So, <laughs> so I know Barb is there. Um, she says she has a 23 year old mare that was diagnosed with heaves and would like to know the best feed and forage for her. She says she knows ideally being on pasture is best for the condition but unfortunately she can only be turned out at night because of allergies to midges. So I'm going to add because I have one of these goofy allergic horses and he was worse on pasture because he's actually allergic to grasses <laughs> so oh yeah yeah so <laughs> what advice do you have for Barb's uh horse
1: yeah well soaking the hay is you know what she's doing which is great because you really want to that helps kind of expand those mold spores so they're not so respirable um and um obviously you, you can do soaking hay i mean for some people that's just not a possibility right i mean so a couple of years ago when i was living in california um we had no water right i mean there were actually barns that were bringing their water in in water trucks um so soaking hay was going to be a big no-no um so in those instances feeding pellets or cubes um tend to be less dusty um can be helpful like haylage can be beneficial um Obviously, you want to make sure that when you, after you soaked your hay that you're feeding it on, you want to always be feeding them on ground level um, because they need their heads low so their respiratory tracts can drain so that if you do have kind of, you know, basically gunk in their respiratory tract, it can kind of drain out. Um, you know, other barn management things. I was in a barn yesterday and, you know, one of my big pet peeves is leaf blowers in barns. Mm-hmm. and, you know, blowing the aisles to get rid of all the dust. Um, I mean, that's just you, you just really want to cut down on all dust in the environment. Right. So the research coming out of Europe is really suggesting um, actually that in general, performance horses should not be bedded on straw, not just horses with heaves, but like any performance horse, just because straw tends to be um, higher in, um you know these, these mold spores and things which aggravate the respiratory tract. So definitely if you have a heavy horse think about the bedding you're keeping them on um, and you may even choose you know not you know to pick a stall flooring type where you don't know you can use very minimal bedding um, so that you have less dust. Um, again when people are mucking out stalls um, doing it in a way that minimizes dust. You're not sort of merrily throwing the bedding around all over the place Mm -hmm. um, with the horse in there. Um, So that's, you know, as I said, the leaf blowers are bad because they just, like, they make all the dust
0: airborne. Um, So if your horse is one that isn't going to do well because because it has heaves and hay isn't a great choice for your horse, can you go to an all pellet diet can pellet? Yeah. Replace your forage or your hay forage.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. I was never really much of a pellets person because as we all know, you know, horses evolved, eating pasture, chewing all day long, long stem forage, what have you, keeping them busy. Um, Chewing secrete saliva, which buffers stomach acid the fiber in the hay cre- creates a nice mat on the surface of the stomach acid to kind of stop it splashing up and so your ulcer risk goes down. So it's never a big fan of, of pellets just because they take longer, I'm sorry, they take less time to chew and less, you know, there's less chewing, so there's less saliva, there's less stomach buffering, they're standing around for longer with nothing to do. Um, so they were never my go-to for, for the majority of horses, and obviously there's gonna be horses with poor teeth where you, and or, you know, this situation like with heaves where you don't have a choice, right? It's the lesser of two evils. But, you know, then when I really started researching um, automatic pellet feeders, I realized that these uh, feeders, you can program them to deposit pellets at intervals. So you can basically, you know, drop a pound at 8 a.m you know 9 a.m 10 a.m 2 p.m what have you all through the night and simulate grazing and then you've got chewing at hourly intervals or whatever throughout the day depending on how you program it so now i'm not so concerned about you know feeding a pellet only diet um you know and i do know barns that's especially here in arizona um we have a number of barns that um Feed only hay pellets. And I always get this question about, well, what about fiber? You need fiber. And we have to remember fiber is something on a cellular level. It's not big chunks of hay. Mm -hmm. Fiber is a, you know, it's a carbohydrate. It's a it's a tiny thing. Um, And horses don't really appear to be like cattle need some long stem fibre of what we call scratch factor scratches the inside of their rumen stomach, and it's very important for keeping the lining of that stomach healthy. It doesn't seem like horses um, that that's as important, but certainly, um, you know, I'm always a big believer. And if you can even feed you know, a couple of pounds of long stem hay, it's probably beneficial. But there are many horses out there that do very well on pellets. And I think if you can feed them in a way where you can really make a lot of small meals, um, it can be quite, you know, it can be
0: a good way to feed. We have a question from the live audience. Tara wants to know what kind of automatic pellet dispensers you personally like.
1: I personally like ones called iFeed. Um, and the reason for that is that um, not only can you dictate the time of day they get fed, you can dictate the amount. So I can say, I want to feed at 8 a.m., and I want to do, there's a little dial inside, and you could turn that dial to like 8. And what that means is that at 8 a.m., it's going to drop eight two ounce servings of whatever feed you've put in it. So you don't get the whole pound as one big whoosh. You get two ounces and 30 seconds later, you get two ounces and 30 seconds later, you get two ounces. And so that pound is split up into eight two ounce handfuls distributed over a number of minutes. And so they literally only get a handful at a time. Mm -hmm. So, and I, I believe that's the only one that does that, but you know, there are a number out there of different ones.
0: We have a question from Isabel in our live audience and she wants to know if you have an opinion about feeding organic versus non-organic selenium uh, via supplement.
1: Ah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's so we often our inorganic sources are sources like sodium selenite or sodium selenate and the yeasts are often labeled as selenium yeast. Selenium yeast is going to be more absorbable. It's more bioavailable. Um, and that worries people, right? They think, oh my, because everyone's heard that selenium, of all the minerals, has the potential to cause problems at a much lower
0: concentration in the diet than the other minerals. So right. let's let's back up and yeah. uh, and talk about what <laughs> selenium is, because um, I, I realized yeah. after I asked that question that we were, we were jumping over something. Yes. Let's talk about what selenium is and, and why it can be risky. Or in my area where we don't get enough, why? need to be supplemented with it
1: right so selenium is a trace mineral um, meaning that it's required in very small um, milligram per day quantities versus say a macro mineral like calcium which is uh, required in gram quantities so they really are they're often called trace minerals because you need them in you know tiny trace amounts and um, and so selenium is a selenium is a trace mineral. Now, most so other examples of trace minerals would be copper, zinc, iron, manganese, iodine. These are all trace minerals. Um, and most of the ones we think about, copper, zinc, manganese, and iron, um, have very high upper tolerable levels as far as you'd have to feed an awful lot of them to really cause a problem. And, and even when you feed a lot of them, um they're not so much toxic as they just start having negative effects on the absorption of other minerals um so for example um you know the upper tolerable level for iron in the diet is 500 parts per million in the diet meaning that for every kilo of feed you feed um you could feed 500 milligrams of iron right that's the point where above that you're you're really running into you know potential problems and you know we and iron is one where we, we try to stay well below that because iron does actually accumulate in the liver and can actually cause problems. But then if you compare that to selenium, um, you know, selenium, we really try to keep down around, um, you know, more like um, sort of like two parts per million in the diet, right? So which would be two milligrams of selenium per kilogram of diet that you're feeding. That's kind of, at that point, it's, that's where, you, that's where you run into toxicity issues. So you can see there's a huge difference there, right, mm-hmm. between iron at 500 and selenium at 2. Um, and people need to understand that's not 2 milligrams in the diet. That's mm-hmm. 2 milligrams per kilogram of diet. They're too very, So before anybody freaks out because they're going, oh, my gosh, I'm feeding 3 milligrams of selenium. <laughs> that's, that's, it's, if you've got, you know, 1 or 2 milligrams of selenium in your entire diet, you're fine.
0: Right. But if you're if you're feeding a a concentrate that has selenium in it and then you're adding supplements that have selenium yeah. in them as well, can you run into problems?
1: Absolutely. And in certain areas of the United States anyway, we have certain areas that are, um soils are quite high in selenium. Um, and so the hay can be high in selenium. Um, and uh I've definitely run into some haze that are and it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned I know you you know you're in an area up in the Pacific Northwest, which is known to be low in selenium. However, I have clients in the Pacific Northwest whose horses have tested high in selenium, and they're yeah. not actually going overboard in their selenium, so I'm actually a big believer in uh testing horses' selenium levels um so that you know. Because it's you just sometimes you just don't know, and even within the low areas, there can be. I learned this when I lived in California. Um, we were fairly generally, typically low. The majority of the haze that I tested came back with selenium levels that were so low, the lab couldn't even detect the selenium. And then, so I got to the point where I'm like, oh, we're in a low area. Then I went and tested a hay, and it came back. Um, I think it was like 1.5 parts per million. I was like, whoa, hang on a minute, like that's not low, that's quite high when I'm feeding, you know, a good amount of that hay. Um, What happens? So I talked to somebody and said, well, yeah, there are these these little pockets where the selenium is known to be higher. Um, So if you can't test your hay, you can test your horse and test blood work and find out whether or not the diet you're feeding is providing adequate selenium. And you know, getting back to the, the question of organic versus inorganic people worry about the organic because it is more absorbable. However, that also means that it is taken up into like muscle tissue more easily and kind of, you know, ferreted away by the body for want of a better expression. Whereas the inorganic tends to spend, you know, tends to be circulating around um, and, you know, can potentially, although it doesn't get absorbed into the body as easily, once it's in the body, um, it's kind of out and about more and has the potential to actually, you know, be more likely to cause a an issue than the selenium yeast so um, the selenium yeast is you know it's perfectly safe but yes you're right the selenium is definitely one that i will add you know add up all my sources of selenium
0: to kind of see where i am Um, we have a question from our live audience marilyn grows her own hay and she says it tests at only eight percent protein She supplements with a whey protein isolate. Uh, Mm -hmm. Is there another way to supplement protein that isn't a dairy type protein?
1: Yeah, I mean, soybean meal is a very good source of soybean meals are, uh, best quality protein from a plant source, if that makes sense. And when we're talking about quality of protein, we're talking about the proportion of the essential amino acids that are in that protein, right? So horses actually don't have a protein requirement. I mean, we say they do, and all of the books you'll read will always talk about a protein requirement, but actually what they have is they have an amino acid requirement, and the amino acids are delivered by the protein, right? The the amino acids are like the letters in the alphabet and the proteins are kind of like words, you know, in Mm -hmm. a sentence, right? So, um, and the horse can make some amino acids himself. um, So those are non-essential. Non-essential nutrients can be made by the horse. uh, Whereas the essential nutrients have to be in the diet because the horse cannot make them. And so there are these essential amino acids that must be in the diet And when we look at a protein source and we say, okay, well, of all the amino acids that this source of protein is bringing to my diet, how many of them are essential and how many of them are non-essential? And the greater the proportion are essential, the better the quality that protein is. And so soybean meal um, is the kind of best quality protein source that we have um, for horses. And obviously whey protein isolate is um, also very high quality, but um, it's a... It's very high in what we call branched-chain amino acids, Um, so like valine, isovaline, um, which are very useful for muscle mass and helping to build muscle and support muscle because much of our muscles, a lot of branched-chain amino acids in our muscle tissue, but it's not going to be such a good source of lysine and methionine, especially as... um, whey protein isolate is very expensive and so you know most of the time you're probably feeding it in grain you know sort of 50 60 grams maybe 100 grams but I mean it's you know it's expensive and versus you know if you're feeding soybean meal um, it's much cheaper and uh, you're getting a much more broad spectrum of amino acids in that than you might be from your your whey protein. Whey protein's great if you have horses that Like you're already feeding a soybean meal like a ration balancer with a lot of protein in it and you're still struggling to build top line um, then the whey protein sources can be very useful um, for helping kind of build that top line and there is some research on there are some products out there that have some research on them that show that they help support you know top line and muscle development and they do have a combination of soy and and whey protein in them. um you know other source another source that's becoming pretty popular is hemp um and that's a very comparable (laughs) profile to soy and I know some people don't like feeding soy um and so hemp's another plant-based alternative it's not quite as good as soy but it's you know it's fairly close yeah
0: so you mentioned ration balancers and that was going to be my question if you have a, a lower protein hay and that's you know obviously if you grow it yourself that's the hay that you have um is adding a ration balancer the solution to making sure the horse gets the nutrition they need and i think we probably should go ahead and and define what a ration balancer is so that people understand that for sure
1: yeah i mean it is certainly like just the easiest one-stop shop solution, right, to what's not in your hay. Not just from a protein standpoint, but across the board. So what a ration balancer is, is it's a very concentrated feed that has a very small serving size because it's so concentrated. So you only need to feed one or two pounds per day. It is formulated so that you only have to feed one or two pounds per day. And you get all of the vitamins and minerals and nutrition in that quality protein in those one or two pounds right versus say your performance feed which has a serving size of like minimum serving size of maybe six you know nine pounds of feed per day you'll get the same vitamin and mineral quality protein from those six to nine pounds per day but the reality is is very few horses actually need six to nine pounds of performance feed per day so what happens is is people end up feeding those performance feeds at one or two pounds per day their horses look great because the calorie intake is correct but they're deficient in key nutrients because they're not feeding their feeds correctly so um if that's all the amount of commercial feed you need combination with your hay to have your horse in the correct weight then a ration balancer is a much
0: better choice because it's so highly fortified Mm -hmm. and i think that it's important to consider that the ration balancer is the bag the 50 pound bag is going to cost a little bit more than your um your performance feed possibly because it's a much smaller serving size
1: right, and I, and I do get that right, because people buy a bag of performance feed, which I don't know because it's all different across the country, but let's just say it's twenty bucks a bag, right, and you should be feeding six, nine pounds per day, um but they're only feeding two pounds. Well, now they go buy a fifty pound bag of something that costs thirty dollars a bag, and they're feeding two pounds, so now their feed bill has gone up, mm-hmm. right. But they weren't feeding the first one properly, and they had all kinds of deficiencies. And um, you know, potentially over the long term, that has health implications, which you'll pay for later. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're not really saving yourself any money. And I think it's worth just you know mentioning: eight percent protein is not overly high protein, but horses don't need as much protein as we think they do. You know, I think there's this sort of misconception that horses need a lot of protein, right? And I rarely see a diet that's deficient in protein, even when the ration is only, when the hay is only eight percent protein. Um, certainly, if you're restricting the intake of the hay and you're, you know, you're an easy keeper and you're barely, you know, you're feeding on that really low end of intake and you've got a lower protein hay. Yes, you might be the low end. The bigger issue with the low protein hay is that it may also be it may be low protein because it's more mature. And therefore, that protein may not be as available because it's bound up inside cells with a lot of complex carbohydrate Mm -hmm. that requires microbial fermentation in the hindgut in order to be able to access it. So by the time you've broken down the cell wall to release that protein, you've missed the part of the digestive tract where protein gets absorbed, right? So if she's testing her hay, it sounds like, and she knows that it's 8% protein, I would also... They'll be looking at what's called the acid detergent fiber or the ADF and looking to see how much, which is sort of a measure of indigestible fiber. How high is that indigestible fiber? Because if that's sort of over 35, 37 percent, you know, some Timothys I see in the low 40 percent, that's a pretty stemmy indigestible hay. And that they're low. It may not be very available versus the same hay that's 8 percent protein and only has 32 percent ADF.
0: Uh, we have a question from uh, Rupaul in our live audience, and she wants to know what you can do nutritionally for a mare uh, that um, that has extended or an abnormal heat cycle. Is there anything we can feed our mares to make them happier? <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: that's always yeah, that's a good question. i am I am currently um, Uh, have a mayor on trial and I'm I'm not historically a mayor person it's a whole new universe let's just leave it at that and she's chestnut she's very lovely though but it is a whole new it is a whole new universe um heat cycles I'm not really aware of anything um that really helps with heat cycles um you know there are and again this is not necessarily backed by any solid science that i'm aware of but there are um some people that feel that like feeding i mean you know it's all the red raspberry leaf type things mm-hmm. that are supposed to help the slightly grumpy mares or opinionated mares um but the chased berry the vitex uh, Evertex type products um you know they claim to help uh to sort of regulate hormones and um again i don't know i'm not really aware of any sort of good solid science in them but i certainly hear people um you know feeling that they are um have an effect and i and i know uh people on the human side that also the midwives and things who use them for patients to help modulate hormones um so that might be worth trying but i'm not really aware i mean just you know i always come back to just you can't go wrong with a good balanced diet Right, and just making sure that all your T's are crossed and your I's are dotted as far as all your trace minerals and vitamins and vitamin E, especially if your horse is on a hay based diet. Um, a lot of horses are faced with vitamin E deficiency. Um, so, just you know, making sure there's nothing missing. Um, and so, she has no excuses really <laughs> from a nutritional standpoint, <laughs>
0: she'll, she'll find others uses <laughs> I, I know <laughs> um, so once you if you feel like there's a, an issue with your nutrition program for your horses or they just aren't looking quite the way you want them to and and you make a change how long should it take to see or see results from that change, from the change of the feed whether it's a little shinier coat or the little better top line or um, better body condition I would definitely,
1: I would definitely be wanting to see a bit of a difference in a month. Okay. So
0: it yeah, doesn't seem like sure. it happens fast, fairly fast.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've seen changes in, in like coat color in two, you know, certainly three weeks. I sometimes get people calling me and saying, oh my gosh, it's like totally changed color. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so yeah, it, it can be pretty rapid. Um, and the trick is, you know, but it's, it's always better to go, you know, especially with weight gain or loss. Slow, steady, patient mm-hmm. right, is always a much safer way to go. I don't worry about coat color changes. That's a little, you know, that's, but like weight loss, it's great if your course's coat changes color in two weeks, awesome. But um, you don't want to see radical weight differences in, in two weeks. That's, you know, slow and steady wins the race on
0: those. Uh, Sherry's in our live audience and she wants to know if there's a best diet for horses prone to white line disease or CD toe that would help promote healthy hooves and a healthy uh, lamina.
1: Yeah, CD toe can be really frustrating. Um, My mother had a horse with CD toe when I was growing up and it just seemed to come and go. And um, I think, you know, I, I always again come back to. Why? Why? You know, what's causing it, right? So it, it's important to have a discussion with your farrier and also possibly your vet, right? You know, is it mecha- Is it? Is the cause mechanical? You know, is there something with the breakover of that foot or stresses on that foot that is stressing? Um, I mean, basically, you know, white white line CD toe is where your hoof wall is separating from the sole of the of the foot, right? So you're getting this stretching sort of in a lamina. What's causing that? Is it mechanical? Mechanical, where you've got like shearing forces or what have you that is pulling that wall away from the sole, is it the result of infection? If it's the result of an infection, you know, why is there a there shouldn't be a gap between the wall and the sole? It should be really nice and tight, right? Those lamina should be super tight. So why is there stretching there? That is a, you know, especially depending if you have a horse that's kind of a thrifty type of horse, that's always a bit of a red flag for me. And um i would be having a conversation with my farrier and my vet about you know is this possibly remnants of some low level laminitis that was Mm -hmm. kind of subclinical because we're really starting to realize that there's a lot of subclinical laminitis out there Mm -hmm. and it's not getting it's not getting caught um and it's the you know it can be the beginning stages of well not the beginning stages but these horses can have metabolic issues insulin resistance that hasn't been diagnosed yet and they're getting these low-level subclinical laminitis cases um, and it's presenting as abscesses or it's presenting as white line or what have you and these are those first warning signs and it kills me when those get missed and suddenly you've got full-blown laminitis and foundation and rotation and it's devastating. Having said that, getting back to like the nutrition, um, you know, big things for feet, zinc because it's needed for um, the the hoof cell walls it helps uh, with cell production it also impacts the synthesis of like the keratins as well as helps with the generation of the cement that holds those cells together so if you don't have enough zinc in the diet you kind of get weakened um, cell structures Um, copper there's a lot of copper dependent enzymes necessary for the formation of the disulfide bonds in keratin, keratin being the protein that kind of makes up both hair, but also hoof horn. Um, And it also impacts other enzymes that are important for the rigidity of the hoof wall. And then I mentioned those disulfide bonds, those sulfur containing compounds. Keratin, that protein, has a lot of sulfur containing amino acids in it. So you'll often see methionine in in hoof supplements because methionine has a lot of sulfur in it. Um, so those are kind of the key ones. A little bit of fatty acid, um, because that helps with pliability. Like you don't want the hoof to be so rigid, right? It has to be able to kind of, it has to be able to stretch and shrink and, and not crack or separate. So you have a little bit of fatty acid in there to kind of help um, with that. Um, biotin, yeah, jewelry's kind of out sometimes. It helps, sometimes it doesn't. It's, it's better for shelly feet. Um, and it takes a long time to have an effect, but it's pretty cheap. So, um, and it's great for mains and tails that snap as well. So sometimes it's beneficial just to put some biotin in. It's not super expensive. Okay. Um, the
0: other yeah. thing I
1: would add is keep keeping the environment clean too, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: That's important too. So. Yeah, from from the management side. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have a follow-up question from Nilla in, in the live audience. She said that uh, you mentioned testing for selenium. Um, do, you mm-hmm. have, do you recommend testing horses for other mineral or vitamin levels, or is testing the feed a better option? Definitely test for vitamin
1: E. I think that's a really important one um, to be testing for. Um, see a lot of low vitamin E, and um, that can lead to some – you know, it, it can contribute to um, lack of muscling. Um, it can also contribute to some pretty significant conditions um, like uh, equine motor neurons disease. So having enough vitamin E is really important. Um, and there's a lot of individual variation, which are going back to the differences between you know, the skinny horse and the horse that's fine. There's a lot of individual variation in how horses utilize vitamin E. So we know that natural vitamin E is the most bioavailable and most easily absorbed. But once it's in the body, how it gets utilized, there's a lot of vari- variation between individual horses. So and I've seen that. I've seen I had a client. She had three horses fed exactly the same diet. We tested their vitamin E and they all had three completely different vitamin E levels. So um, testing vitamin E is I think is really important. Um, other minerals can be tricky. It can be hard to... Um, they can be affected by a lot of um, kind of other, other factors. So um, there can be, you know, all kinds of random variation in mineral levels. So I think you can get good information. Um, it's a matter of testing for the right things and working with a lab that has, you know, good enough, Sort of what we call like normal ranges that they can account for that variability and that you're going to get back information that's actually useful. Um, so even things like um, is the animal growing? Is it lactating? Is it pregnant? Um, can have an effect on you know mineral levels like sort of copper and zinc and the like. So you you have to take your results that you get back within that context if that makes sense. So I typically don't do, I mean, I'm not a veterinarian, so I don't do any actual blood draws or anything myself, but I typically don't do a lot of like mineral type analysis. I, you know, recommend people get their vet, do mineral analysis. Um, we'll sometimes do, a, you know, do like a CBC and a general blood panel just to kind of make sure everything's working the way it's supposed to. Um, but normally, I just really rely on, on the diet because they only come you know they only get their minerals from their diet so if the diet's lacking the chances are they're going to be low too so we always start kind of start with the diet but if i have you know strange things going on when we can't quite figure out um i just had one um just this week had a a client call me about a horse that's had shifting lameness issues um diagnosed tried you know working it up all kinds of different ways ended up having a um nucleus nuke scan done on it and uh, really low bone density in some of its bones and um, I've worked with a handful of these other these horses before and they end up being low um, the things of hyperparathyroid and low calcium And we have to uh, change the calcium phosphorus ratio in the diet or provide more bioavailable calcium. So there are certainly conditions where you would be motivated to go look at mineral levels in the blood, that being one of them, like they are now off. That horse is having blood drawn to test its parathyroid hormone levels and its free calcium, just so we can see um, whether that's the cause of what we're seeing on the um, nuke scan results.
0: Uh, We have a question from Alan in our live audience. He says he has drafts that get too too fat when they're out on pasture. How can he manage that?
1: Uh, Yeah, that's always a chance. Pasture is a blessing and a curse, right? Many of us would love to have pasture, but it has its own challenges. Yeah, (laughs) I know. Um, Really a grazing muzzle is your friend. They research done on use of grazing muscles has shown as much as like 83% reduction in um, grazing intake. Uh, All those things we used to do, which we, you know, all those things we used to do, like, well, instead of turning them out for eight hours, we'll just put them out for four hours and they don't get any skinnier. Well, we've done research on that. And what we found is they just eat faster. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, we kind of knew that, right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I think we kind of knew that. So they learn that they're not gonna be out there as long, so they just eat faster. Um so those sorts of tactics for weight management don't work as well. And you know, I, I often get a lot of pushback about grazing muzzles and people sort of think, oh, you know, they're they're it's just kind of, you know, so mean and what have you. And I kind of kinda of, like, take the tough love approach. It's like, I'm sorry, but the 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 secondary things that can happen is. Of obesity and being overweight, especially in draft horses who tend towards having metabolic issues. We're talking laminitis and founder. Yeah. Like, you know, and I'll be blunt, I'm sorry, but wearing a grazing muzzle is much kinder than subjecting your horse to obesity and the potential for founder. And having, you know, managed a horse with founder, I wouldn't wish it on any horse or any owner. Yeah. Um, so a grazing muzzle really is sometimes you have to be, you know, it's that tough love thing. I will say that you know I've had people say, "Oh, but he hates it. I get it out, and he's all like slinks off to the back of his stall." Well, horses read body language and your intention, right? So if you walk into the into the stall with the grazing muzzle, kind of being all apologetic, <laughs> 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 kind of going, "Oh God, I'm so sorry. I'm really sorry. I have to do I have to do this," they pick up on that vibe, and they're just kind of like, "Oh, you're being really funky, right?" And they're just gonna kind of go hide. They don't want anything to do with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you change your tune a little bit and put a cookie or something in the bottle of the grazing muzzle and kind of walk in there with a, hey dude, you got to go out. Here's a grazing muzzle. Now you get to go out in the pasture. They're all like, oh, cool, carrot in the bottom of the grazing muzzle. And off they go. So a lot of the grazing muzzle stuff, I hate to say it, is our own projection of our own
0: concerns about the grazing muzzle. The horses are often fine.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, We have a question from Susan in our live audience, and she wants to know how much and what to feed uh, when her 31-year-old mare isn't able to chew her hay anymore.
1: Um, So it sounds like she's not there yet. When I have people who come with, you know, really sort of 29, 30, 31-year-old horses, Mm -hmm. my first thing is always just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Um, Because, I mean, you're doing something, right? you got to 31. Um, And, uh, you know, sometimes we don't want to change things on the older horses, they don't, they don't always handle change too well. But really, um, sometimes it's not even the the fact that they um, don't have any tooth left, right? I mean, horses teeth are like pencil leads in mechanical pencils, they go click, 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 and eventually you start running out of pencil lead. Um, And so you do end up at the point where they really don't have really any chewing teeth left. but sometimes they have plenty of tooth, they've just lost the ability to grind because they don't have any strength left in their jaw. Um, and so they have enough teeth, they just don't have the strength to really grind. So at those points, you know, pellets, um, you know, you're really are looking at pellets. And that's like I said earlier, um, you know, sometimes it's, you know, the lesser of two evils, right? Um, you would love to feed long stem hay for sort of all the benefits of long stem hay, but if that means they don't uh, get the nutrition out of it because they're not breaking it. The reason why teeth are so important is we're grinding that hay and forage into small particle sizes. The smaller the particle sizes, the larger the surface area you have for the digestive enzymes and the hindgut bacteria to work on. So you get better digestion, right? which is why we grind feed that we put into pellets and why we process feeds. It's for better digestion. It's, um, and that's a good thing. Right. So um, but when you get to the point where those teeth can't really make those particle sizes small enough for effective digestion, at that point, the horse can't get out of the hay, what well, you need it to to maintain itself. Then you've got to go to pellets because we've done the the, the, the chewing for them, basically. Right. We've ground up the hay and put it in a pellet. Um, and depending, some pellets aren't that hard, but you see some hay pellets. I mean, they're gorgeous. Right. I mean, they're like shiny mm-hmm. and they're like rock hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so those, you may have to even you know soak them a little bit um, so that they can chew them. But other types of hay pellets are much softer, so it depends on the manufacturer.
0: Well, we've already talked about what a ration balancer is, um, but we are coming to the end of our hour and we haven't touched on the difference between a complete feed, a concentrate, and a ration balancer, and a forage pellet. Do you want to quickly hit <laughs> yeah. on each of those so that people can understand what the differences are?
1: Yeah. So like a forage pellet or like a hay pellet is, you know, literally just hay ground up and then put back into a pellet. And it might have a binder um, to help it stay in the pellet form. Um, Sometimes you use like bentonite clay and that's when you'll often get a real shiny, hard pellet. But Mm -hmm. there's often not unless they're telling you they've added fortification. They're not. It's just
0: literally your bale of hay ground up, put in a pellet. Right. It's essentially the
1: same as hay.
0: And in my area, we have a couple options that are hay pellets, but they also have flax and some fat added to them. Um, Right. And I know it can be confusing to people then because they think that that's a a concentrate feed when it's you know it's it's really with
1: added fat yeah right exactly um and so you really have to look and look at your ingredient list in those instances and are they just adding a bit of flax and a bit of fat or are they actually adding zinc and copper and vitamin e and all those other things that are not in your hay right so you can feed hay you can feed a hay pellet that will give your horse most of the most horses unless they're working super hard right All of the calories they need, most of the protein they need, um, a good chunk of the calcium phosphorus they need, but probably not enough copper, not enough zinc, and certainly not enough vitamin E. So then you somehow need to get those in the diet, and that's where we go to the ration balancer. Right, We're going to feed one or two pounds of this highly fortified, uh, generally high protein uh, feed to give you the things that are missing in your hay pellet or in your hay, baled hay. If you cannot maintain your horse's condition, um, you know, feeding hay and a ration balancer, and what you actually need is some, you need actually extra calories, something more calorie dense. That's when you start getting to your performance feeds that also add calories, but again, you have to feed them the way the manufacturer says. Then we have complete feeds, and a complete feed is has everything in it that the horse needs, including the forage. So a complete feed is formulated where you feed no hay, no hay pellets. You just feed the complete feed. So you might be looking at 15, 20 pounds of complete feed a day. And not very many people do that. Mm -hmm. Most people feed, you know, one or two pounds of complete feed because they're like, well, it's complete. It's got everything in it that my Mm -hmm. horse needs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. If you feed it as the only thing they get. Yeah, and you don't feed any, and you know people look at me and oh, I couldn't afford that, you know. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> very yeah, few people yeah. could. Um, so uh, yeah, so that's the purpose of a complete feed. Um, you know, and it's hard because people kind of say, well, but technically, you know, a performance feed could be a complete feed if I feed it properly. It's you know got all the vitamins and minerals, but it's not giving you the forage component. It is giving you it's complete in the sense that it's giving you the vitamins and minerals and the protein. But a performance feed is not designed to be a source of forage. They're meant to be fed with, um, you know, they're meant to be fed with your hay or your pasture or whatever, or your hay pellets, whatever you decide to do for your forage component. Whereas a complete feed is everything mixed together um, in one bag. No need for hay, no need for hay pellets.
0: Well, we are... um done with our hour but we have one more question from our live audience that I think will be a good one to wrap up with um dr Tunes, and it's from jennifer and she wants to know uh what is a good resource to confirm your horse is getting their daily nutritional needs met yeah
1: I, and i'm not sure whether just from the from a standpoint of um just a piece of mind how do you know just like looking at it or is there a resource she wants to go to to be able to kind of look at the diet um herself and kind of know what the horse's requirements
0: are i think she's just looking for a resource so is it talking to your vet is it talking to the feed store person is it talking to a nutritionist Um, yeah i mean it's it's very um you know there's there are a lot of really good resources out there obviously
1: i am biased towards nutritionists (laughs) (laughs) because i am one (laughs) um and, um, you know, the thing about the nutritionist, and, and again, you, there are a lot of very good nutritionists available, and, um, even, you know, people sort of say, it, they are trained in nutrition, um, you know, that's what they do. They work solely in equine nutrition, many of them, and um, those working for companies have a lot of you know, excellent um, advice and experience that they can give you. And many of them will give you advice um, and good information, you know, about nutrition in general without trying to get you to feed their company's feed. So don't be put off by, um, you know, nutritionists working for companies because they, I mean, I know many, many of them and they're all excellent, excellent nutritionists and they will give you very good advice. Um, your veterinarian can also be a very good, you um, resource for you, but it's also worth asking your veterinarian, you know, how much nutrition training have they had? Some have had, um, you know, fairly good nutrition training, right? They maybe did a bachelor's degree in animal science and took a, you know, an entire equine nutrition class as part of their bachelor's. Um, Some of them may not have done, some of them may have actually got a master's degree in animal nutrition before they went to vet school, and then you'll have other vets who, um, you know, I have a friend who's a vet, she did economics for her bachelor's, um, never took an equine nutrition class as an undergraduate, and um, got a handful of classes in vet school, but that's the extent of her nutrition training, and um, obviously, you know, she's she's not going to know as much about nutrition as a veterinarian that has gone out of their way to study nutrition, either by doing a master's or, um, you know even who took an equine nutrition class as an undergraduate. So I think it's important to understand that the level of nutrition training the veterinarians have um, really varies between okay. veterinarians. Um, so ask, right? Okay. <laughs> ask them, um, you know, how much nutrition training they have and um, and ask them if they have not ask them if they have a resource for a nutritionist um, that they can recommend you to um, if you don't know one. Um, there are a number of us also uh, nutritionists who um, sort of work on our own and, and work directly with clients in a um, not-paid salary by feed companies. So you can, you know, look online and find people that way. Um, some feed store staff are very good; others are not so good. Um, and I've certainly put diets together for people and given them an explicit list of this is what you have to feed. And they've come back from the feed store with something different. And I'm like, <laughs> how did that go wrong? And they're like, well, I spoke to Joey at the feed store. what well, he said, I really need, and I'm like, oh my goodness, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Joey is in high school. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, yeah. Um, so again, it's just, you know, trust your gut. Right. And, um, Always, I mean, I always tell to t- step back and look at the whole picture. And we're all guilty of, you know, giving advice in the barn aisle to our friends about what they should do with their horses and how they should manage them. And some of your friends may have excellent advice, but they may also have a horse that's completely different to yours and not really know the whole backstory. And if you just go to the interwebs and say, I have a 15 hand quarter horse, what should I feed it? You know, you as the owner have not set yourself up for the best advice because you haven't actually shared nearly enough information to get really good targeted advice back. Um, So I think that's really important too. Um, And, you know, be diligent about reading your feed labels. Be diligent about, you know, reading instructions um, and make sure you're feeding things the way they're designed to be fed.
0: Well, with that, we are over time, so uh, that is all the time that we have for tonight, um, but I want to thank Dr. Claire Toonez for joining us. Thanks, uh, Dr. Uh oh, um,
1: It's always a pleasure. Great conversation.
0: Can, yeah. yeah, we could go I on for have,
1: hours. I know. I have more <laughs> questions
0: for you. I'm going to get you on the phone here soon because um, <laughs> I I have a, a skinny thoroughbred. So, um For everyone who's listening, thanks for joining us tonight and for submitting your questions. We hope that you can join us next month. We're going to be talking about laminitis, huge topic. Um, Looking forward to that discussion as we move into spring and pasture feeding. Uh, From all of us here at the horse, we hope you have a great night.